Welcome back to Yes X or No Audio. Hello, Delvers of the Deep. Welcome back to the Week in Review series. This is episode two, which could also be called the Batshit Crazy episode. As you may know, I'm a little bit weird or esoteric uh, on occasion, and I'm going to wander into a topic which uh, I find of interest and will no doubt bore everyone. Um, shitless, I think is the term. And that is the nomenclature of dates. So you will note, had you been observant, that I use uh, the international standard for writing down dates, which is four number year, two number month, and two number day. This is how we write down numbers. Most significant thing first. You don't write down 1 and 20 and 300. You write down 321, literally 321. Same idea with dates, year, month, day obvious, right? I have to admit that I consider the American date representation just a batshit stupid crazy. I mean, what what is what is 2-3-4? You know, is, is that meant to be the 3rd of February 2004? Or I mean, God knows, it's the most stupid thing. Anyway, enough of that. I've been living in Europe for a while and the country in which I live makes use of weak numbers, which I consider a little bit weird. But there is a use to them, and I'm going to use them in future for the naming of these weekend reviews. So this is week 18, and the um, anal and weird amongst you, like myself, would immediately ask, okay, what's week one? And that's a good question. Week one, this is another international standard, is the first week of the year that contains four or more days, right? So... If the first week of the year contains, say, two days, then that counts as week 53 of the the year previous, right? It's gathered with that. Yep. So, anyway, there we go. We're in week 18. Welcome to episode two, or week 18, of Week in Review for 2023. The structure of the episode will be as follows. All but one of the articles that were published in the newsletter this week The one that is omitted comes at the end, and that's the article that the author considers the most important. Uh, Subjective, la la la. In the middle comes all the stuff I didn't talk about that that wasn't published in the newsletter that I thought was interesting during the week. On May the 3rd, uh, Tea for Two to a Cha-Cha Rhythm, Pick Your Partner was published. That was an article in two parts, really two articles should have been published separately, perhaps, but merged into one. Uh, the first part of which was a, an analysis of the commentary by both Colonel uh, McGregor and Dima of uh, the Military Summary Channel on what's been going down in Ukraine. And the article's not so much on what's been going down in Ukraine, so much as looking at these commentaries and analyses and comparing them and seeing just how rich the commentary on what's going on in Ukraine is if you look at uh, sources out there on the internet. So it takes a little while to, you know, come to your own conclusions about what sorts of sources you see as valuable. But having been through that process, you really can learn an awful lot about what's going on in something as difficult to get reliable information on as wars in progress. So this is a blessing, I think, of the era in which we live, where Although there's been, there has been and there continues to be a lot of crackdown on what can and cannot be said on the internet, there's still a lot of stuff out there and valuable commentary can be found. 
And I think both of these gentlemen provide excellent commentary uh, on what's going on in Ukraine from slightly different perspectives. So they agree largely on the the mechanics, the actuality, the, the stuff on the ground that's happening, but they come at it from slightly different perspectives. So first of all, the fact that they agree on these things is useful and you go, all right, that's probably roughly what's going on. And then you get their slightly differing analyses to build a picture for yourself about how you see what's going on. So that was part one of T for Two. And part two was just a note on the fact that that amazing development by, first of all, initial efforts by Russia and then sort of deals signed by China of the rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, which was like, you, what? What? <laughs> that that major diplomatic shift is continuing to have effect in the Middle East. And so we've got things like uh, Syria being invited back into the Arab League. That hasn't quite happened yet because there's a little bit of resistance in, in some places, as was evident from the meeting in Amman. That's the capital of Jordan, who were you know, providing a, uh, a place for diplomatic discussion to occur. Much as I commented about Austria back in that article about a month ago uh, about the the decline of diplomacy with that wonderful interview that the Duran did with, I forget her name, former um, Austrian foreign minister. So Jordan are doing the same thing as Iraq have been in being a location for diplomatic exchange to occur. So no one, there was this meeting in Amman, and one of the participants was Egypt, which I comment upon in the article, which is really good to see them back in the diplomatic space. And it's, so that in itself, I think, tells you that things are changing, that, that, that Egypt's coming out of its shell, which is really nice to see. And in that, I refer to a, a very old interview from 1970 by a Danish reporter uh, with NASA who was the second president of the modern nation of Egypt, uh, which is a, a throwback in time and an examination of what the world used to look like back then. And also it's the sort of mores of reporting at the time. I, I, just, I just think it's interesting every now and then to look back in history and see what things were like back then. So that was that article, essentially comparative analysis of commentary on the Ukraine war and then a note of the continued changes occurring in the Middle East following the rapprochement. On May the 4th, uh, another issuance of an article from the Interesting Articles series was put forward and it had a few things to say and it turns out that in the end the dominant component of it was World Press Freedom Day. But the other um, articles were interesting too. The first was from Caitlin Johnston, uh, who issued a, an article which suggested a little bit of self-compassion. Because the times we're living in are so damn crazy, you should be a little easy on yourself. And I love the, I love the title, you know, You're Not Deficient, You're Just Ruled by Assholes. Classic Caitlin Johnston. Um, the most thoughtful of all the articles was by uh, Patrick Lawrence, uh, where he's considering how Europe wants to position itself in these changing times. It's titled Europe's Fate. I uh, had a little beef with one of the things that he had to say, which was the extended component of the article at the end. 
But I thought that Lawrence's article was very well thought out. Yeah, so thought-provoking and well put together, although apart from that little beef I had. And then we get to World Press Freedom Today, day, which I'll say a little more about. And uh, we finish up with Dimitri Lascaris, uh, who we'll come back to later as well. And then the Tucker Carlson story. And lastly, an interesting discussion between Desai and Hudson on the nature of the changing global financial systems, plural. And I make the recommendation for people who are interested in geopolitics to make sure you keep an eye on geoeconomics because that's actually the driving force. Uh, behind geopolitics for a lot of the time. And this particular video that's included is the fourth in their series on de-dollarization and the changing nature of world financial systems, so I recommend it. But back to the World Press Freedom Day, and it was really nice to see, uh, well, I think we counted up three journalists (laughs) in America who actually managed to, you know, raise the question to various pontificating wankers from the State Department, the White House spokesperson, and the... Yeah. Where they're all wobbling on about, oh, we stand for press freedom, and and, and a few people actually went, yeah, about that. Uh, what's happening with uh, Julian Assange? You know, you're keeping him locked up in a maximum security prison and essentially doing to him what the uh, rapporteur former... Uh, UN rapporteur for um, torture and degrading treatment has described as psychological torture. You are essentially killing him. Uh, Any comment on that? And the answer was, um, no. Or, uh, he's been charged with uh, doing nasty crimes. (laughs) So, it was good to see uh, there was a lot of commentary about that across the interwebs. So, uh, sequences on you know the Jimmy Dore show Caitlin's article is really good and in-depth and was republished at Consortium News there was a fair amount of commentary on that my big take on it was how bloody amazing Medea Benjamin is takes the stage at just the right moment when when Blinken Lights takes the stage and um, CIA plant (laughs) Ignatius is about to ask him about Gerskovich and she charges onto the stage, banner up. <laughs> what about bloody Assange? Which was just beautiful. She completely stole the, the the headlines for the day. Clever girl. And my question, of course, in the article was, who the hell let her in? I mean, how dumb do you have to be? <laughs> of course, this is at the Washington Post premises where this is being held. So they've got to know who she is. I mean... Or are there, are there security goons that dumb? Speaking of goons, I hope you enjoyed the, um, the sort of hand-painted graphic <laughs> which I used to lead the, uh, the article, which I thought was a bit of fun, you know, with the arrows. CIA, State Department, goons, Medea. Anyway, so the point about her is that she, once she gets ejected from there with Ty Barry, her uh, partner in, in protest... They appear up the street at uh, another protest that was going on the day, which had started out at the Department of Justice, where um, Nick Branner of the People's Party made a, you know, not a bad speech and so forth, and they wandered down the road. 
to get outside the front of the press building, uh, the National Press Club building. Uh, and the odd speech is made. Medea stays out of that, but she's there with the same damn banner. And then they wander on to end up back outside the Washington Post building where she does, you know, make a little speech or whatever. I just thought, go girl. You know, it's like she's very well planned, knows what she's doing. Great stuff. I'm, I'm, a, I'm like in awe of the organisation planning and also doing, doing something which is something that Ray McGovern has mentioned where he's basically saying that, look, once, you're, once you've got grey hair... You've, you've got a little bit of power, you know, because they really don't want to beat you up because it doesn't look good, right? So you can actually do protests and, and sort of do things that the young'uns can't because, you know, they're not going to, you know, physically abuse you too much. Well, anyway, so Medea's also playing that with, you know, I'm, I'm a slight woman, which is why it looks so bad. These, these goons who are, like, must weigh two to three times what she does dragging her off the stage. And you can see that she's developed the skills. You watch her left leg. It's like put out in front of her on an angle so they've really got to do some work to get her off the stage, which makes them look like the goons they are. So absolute hats off to Medea Benjamin. Damn it, she's good. And uh, I just wanted to do a bit of a rah-rah for her. So we move on to... The last article, by the last one, so the penultimate article, um, which was about the drone attacks against the Kremlin, which is, I'd say, up there equally important in terms of events of the week with the Assange inclusion in the uh, World Press Freedom Day. So we now have a pretty good idea uh, about who done it in that an article from the Financial Times, which was quoted by uh, Alex Christoforou in his most recent Friday afternoon, uh, it was Cyprus time, commentary. Uh, so he reads a bit of the article. FT, of course, is paywall, which is a bit annoying, but whatever. So he reads part of that, which firmly lays the blame at the foot of um, Ukraine. And again, I, I think we've now got a pretty clear picture there that this is an element of the uh, Ukraine government which is choosing not to uh, take instruction from the US. I don't believe that the US is that stupid that it would say, yeah, sure, go ahead, you know, run a, run a drone attack on the Kremlin. I, I have, don't have a lot of respect for the American political powers. The people are, are very different. I'm... I like the American people. They're good, the ones I met. But the political powers are pretty nasty. But I don't think they're that stupid. So that's the sort of initial conclusion, that um, this is some rogue element (laughs) uh, within the uh, Ukrainian government. And you can pretty much finger their offshoots of the uh, military intelligence uh, services, really. That's, that's sort of where you end up. So we don't know, but that's <clears throat> what it's looking like right now. And I think that, first of all, I disregard the whole assassination attempt. It is sort of technically in that Putin might have been there, but it's common knowledge that he very, very rarely spends the evening there. And if you look at it, despite the fact that it was a drone of reasonable size, I don't think it was going to do an awful lot of damage. It would have had to have, you know 
an incredible confluence and circumstances would have had to have occurred that it, you know, positioned itself by a window where, you know, Putin's standing just on the inside and then it goes boom. And it's so it's a shitful assassination attempt. Um, but the point that Christopher makes is that it is an attempted assassination, assassination attempt, even if it's a crappy one. And that in itself is a pretty dangerous thing. And the point that Alastair Crook makes with Judge Napolitano is that this is quite a worry within the peoples of Europe. The other point that Christoforo makes is extending on a comment by, I think it was Peskov, who's the sort of Kremlin spokesperson who... No, it wasn't Peskov, it's someone else, I can't remember who basically lays the blame not not just at the foot of the Ukrainian government, but also the US and the European leadership, which is, I think it's, you know, again, sort of beating up the bush a bit. But it is a serious thing to do, um, do that sort of thing. I mean, just compare what someone, you know, what the Americans would do if someone ran a drone attack, you know, and blow up a drone, you know, uh, on the White House. You know, that's the equivalent. So <clears throat> it's pretty it was a pretty nasty thing. The there was a comment from John Mark Dugan in his discussion with Mike Jones slash IL Gray, in which there are reports that police had observed uh, one of the drones. There were two. One came from the east and the other came from the west. And they struck about what was it, eighteen minutes apart, something like that. So, but there were reports from police on that one of for one of these drones, uh, which were given to their superiors, like we're seeing a drone flying in, and then nothing bloody happened. And I do mention at the end of the article that you know some heads are going to roll for allowing this thing to get that close, like penetrate the Kremlin. So, yeah, I expect a few uh, police commissioners are going to get their asses handed to them uh, over this, certainly. As to the destruction of the plane, the drone, the claim is that it was through electronic warfare, and the Russians are really good at this. But I'm having trouble going. That's pretty. Like, how do you do? How do you get explosives to fire using electronic uh, countermeasures? At I, that's tricky stuff. So they must be really damn good if they can get that to happen. Because it obviously exploded. It looked very much like explosives that were on board that went boom. How do you do that with electronic countermeasures? So the Russians must be damn good. So now we move on to other stuff that happened which was not commented upon within the newsletter. The first is really an extension of the World Press Freedom Day. And that is a an open letter published by Julian Assange uh, addressed to King Charles III. And you have to consider the, consider the cleverness of this. So this is after World Press Freedom Day, when his name's back in lights again, and before the coronation. Like, well-timed. And the letter itself, go read it. It was published by Declassified UK. It's, it's cleverly written. And the best comment that I saw upon it was, again, by Caitlin Johnston, who basically says, damn it, we miss this guy's incisive wit. And that, yeah, 
the powers that be have basically taken taken him offline. So next we move to uh, Wagner, PMC, and Prigozhin. First part was his request for more ammunition, like how the hell am I meant to complete the taking of uh, Artyomov slash Bakhmud by May the 9th if I don't have the ammunition. And then part two of that is the absolutely outrageous uh, video that he published with the cadavers of dead soldiers behind him and in which he goes into an absolute tirade spewing coarse language and making very aggressive statements denouncing the, what's his name, Shoigu, the Minister of Defence and the general who's in charge of the whole operation. And I think the best analysis of this was by the the Alexes at the Duran. And that was that the guy's lost his bloody mind. He's not a soldier. He's been he's chosen to be in the field of operations, which is war as hell, as they say, and it bloody well is. And so he's sort of lost his mind. And the point that Alexander Makuras makes is that no military anywhere is going to tolerate that level of insubordination. And so he's been essentially given a given a rest. Go and have a break. Go and hang out with your family, you know. And they brought in, uh, what was it, a colonel general, uh, who's Mishishkin or something like this, uh, to essentially take over the uh, Wagner forces, who will be brought back from the front line on May the 10th, and their positions were placed by the Russian uh, military, Russian army's forces, which again, I think is the right thing to do. If you're going to have a change in command structure, then yeah, you know, pull out the Wagner guys, put in the, the regular uh, troops to hold the positions and, and hopefully complete <clears throat> the operation. And of course, the 10th is the right day to, to do all of this um, because the 9th needs to be a, a success in Russia, the celebration of their victory in over the Nazis in World War Two, And there was a comment from uh, Scott Ritter on his, was it episode 66 of his Ask the Inspector series that he does with whoever the guy is that compares the show. Um, he was commenting about the May 9th celebration in Russia and that it's, it's uniform and, and global, essentially, well, within the nation of Russia. And of, I would presume so also in, in the Russian diaspora, that this is a very, very, very important day and it means an awful lot to the Russian people. And one of the sadnesses of this celebration of May the 9th is that the, the marches of the Immortal Regiment have been limited uh, and in cases converted to sort of online type things, which is... Understandable, given the circumstances, because it's obvious that Russia can't guarantee the security of Moscow itself. You know, if you've got drones hitting the um, Kremlin, security's not, not up, to, up to snuff. So that's a sad thing, that the immortal regiment won't be taken to the streets of Moscow and all of Russia's major cities. I mean, it may well take place in some 
which we hope, but it won't quite have the same uh, unifying impact as it normally would. Continuing with the theme of the conflict in Ukraine, there was a statement from the Ukrainians that, oh, the spring offensive, it's coming in a while. <laughs> the, was it uh, Christopher who says the spring, summer, autumn, winter or next spring <laughs> offensive? And that, of course, is because the ground is still sodden and, you know, you can't drive tanks over mud <laughs> or bicycles for that matter. So it, that sort of makes sense. But there was another point that was made, which was that a whole bunch of Leopard 2 tanks were seen on railway sidings or thereabouts in Odessa. And the, the question was, are these going to be used for some attack into Transnistria? For those who are unaware, Transnistria is a narrow border region on the east of Moldova, within Moldova, which borders the, the southwest of Ukraine. And the suggestion is that and there are Russian forces, uh, not many of them. I think the quote was something like a thousand light, lightly, so no heavy, not so much in the way of armoured vehicles or tanks or any of that. It's just light infantry. And the suggestion was that there was going to be some attack there because this would cause Russia to have a little bit of a challenge what to do. But if you think about that, that is absolutely batshit and crazy because that's essentially invading Moldova. And this is why you don't have wars in Europe because as soon as they get slightly out of control, it goes, it goes batshit crazy. So I very much hope that this does not happen. And that you then have the, the question of, well, if Ukraine is starting to attack Moldova, who's not been involved in this directly, involved in this conflict, how does the world handle that? As I said, don't have wars in Europe. It's a bad plan. It goes dumb shit crazy very quickly. We know this because that's World Wars One and Two. Continuing on the military theme, uh, this week saw the opening of the first NATO office in the Pacific. And... Completely unsurprisingly, it was opened in Japan. And now to US national politics and the Democratic Party are basically rigging the primary election by denying uh, any debate between uh, Sleepy Joe and the popular insurgent candidate, RFK Jr., who, of course, would just slay him in any debate, and that's why it shall not be allowed to happen. But doesn't that look like denying the electorate or rigging the primaries to you? Yeah. As I've mentioned in some articles, you know, the US really should fix up its own democracy before it starts trying to export it anywhere else or proclaiming its virtues. On a similar front, we've seen YouTube taking down content that involves RFK Jr. Uh, and some of that even being strikes against accounts where the video is like a year old and using whatever tactics they wish to have this done. Oh, he's saying things that are incorrect about, that violate our medical blah, blah, blah rules because he's not agreeing with the COVID rubbish. Whatever. I try and stay out of the COVID thing. The coof, as the Alexes would say, because I it's a contentious issue I don't want to be involved in and I don't know enough about so, but this is just, I think, it's just backdoor. It's censorship by a backdoor, as far as I can see. And we can expect that 
And I suppose that leads us into the the tuck back to the Tucker Carlson story, right? And now they're running out, you know, weird shit attacks on him about stuff that he said in his on his email text and whatever the hell. It's the same. It's the repression of dangerous media providing platforms to people that they don't want to have platforms. And they being obviously Tucker, who was giving voice to people like Trump and RFK Jr. And so forth. It's the same old shit. Another little interesting one was that Clayton Morris had Whitney Webb on for a 10-minute odd section to talk about the latest version of things coming out to do with the Epstein story. And it was very good of him to have Whitney Webb on for she is the world expert on this, apart from the people who did it, i.e. the blackmail ring. I mean, what's her two books are titled uh, One Nation Under Blackmail. So if you want to know about the, the blackmail ring and where it originated, who's involved, and the answer there is, of course, um, Israelis, Mossad, the CIA, all the usual suspects, she is the expert. Uh, get the book, read it. The problem with Webb is that she is so sharp and so fast, it's really hard to follow her. She makes connections so quickly. And she's not like Seymour Hirsch, who's sort of a bit scattergun and goes all over the place. There are links if you pause and think about it. No, her links are obvious and it's not all over the place. It's actually, it makes sense. It's just so fast. And so, yeah, but so she is, if you want to know about Epstein, Whitney Webb. Her website is Unlimited Hangout, so go check her out. The last background article is one just published by Bernard from Moon of Alabama, in which he cites a paper from the Center for Policy Research, in which it declares, it makes a comparison between the the impact on international trade some decades ago and goes, well, it was about 4% from the sanctions applied to international trade. And they look at the figures today and the answer is 29%, which they put at almost a third, which is fair enough, 33%. But that's just batshit crazy, right? 29% of international trade is currently impacted by, san- by unilateral sanctions. <laughs> from the US or the EU, which is, first of all, it's illegal internationally. You can't, you can't do that shit. You have to get the UN Security Council to agree, which, of course, is very difficult because there's all these veto votes because of the way the council's structured. But it's just bad. 29% of global trade? You've got to be kidding me. Anyway, that one, I just... It's quite possible that that will appear in an article somewhere in the future because I just consider that to be outrageous. The last uh, article is by Vijay Prashad. And if you'll allow me to wander into an aside here, there are a few authors, writers, whose work I always read. And that is because they're so well written. And as Chris Hedges uh, advises any aspiring writer, if you want to write, it goes like this. Read, 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 and read, and then write. And so I consider it essential training <laughs> to, uh, for my development of my writing skill to read people who write well. 
and Patrick Lawrence is one of them, Chris Hedges is another, and Vijay Prashad is another. I always read uh, what he has to write. And I, I love his background uh, as a historian uh, and the, the visual art that he includes in his publications. And they are always carefully and well cited. He's a pleasure to read and it's also very well structured and produced writing. So the article is about technology and the the techno war, which has essentially always been going on, but is at the moment particularly um, occurring between the US and China. And it's over essentially what's known as ultraviolet lithography, which is the the technology that's used to print integrated circuits, also known as semicon, you know, that use semiconductors. And China has been made in, making great advances in this area, but the vast volume of advanced circuitry is produced by a, con, a company in Taiwan. Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, TSMC, I think it is. Anyway, the article by Prashad is published at Consortium News. Go check it out. It's it's good. I'm interested in I have a background in IT, and so I'm interested in these sorts of things. But it is a technology war. So what the US is doing is, is pressuring its allies to prevent the sale of this level of lithography to China. And so that involves, there's a, there's a Dutch company or a Belgian company, can't remember which, called ASML, I think. And the same is happening with US outlawing American firms from providing this level of technology to China. And so it's, a, it's trying to stop China's rise via all means. And they've sort of lost the economic battle because China's you know, trade is sufficiently large that it's the largest trading partner of just about everyone. And they've got an awful lot of money, including a trillion dollars uh, in US debt. So the economic battle they're losing. And so now the, the technology, technological battle is being ramped up. And of course, the military battle, which we're hearing about day by day. And that is the very dangerous thing. What we really don't want is a war with China, because all of the region gets sucked into it. South Korea, Philippines, Japan, Australia, Indonesia, Vietnam, and then what happens with you know Malaysia and Thailand. And then of course Russia gets involved because it's China and then you've got the you know the stands, Kazakhstan, etc. Et it is a very, 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 very dangerous thing that the US is is pushing here. And that brings me to the last article. It's titled, Giving Peace a Chance Rather Than Submitting to War, in which I lay out a sort of a plea. We're in very, very dangerous times. And the consequences of the outbreak of a major war, by which I mean a world war, are... Calamitous is just nowhere near a strong enough word. It's it's nighty night, lights out, see you later. You know, the the surviving population of the world will be 
human population will be what no more than 25% of the current population which is to say 6 billion people will die and it, you know and god knows you know how many other species it'll be a mass die off due to a um a nuclear winter so that article is a bit bleak in that regard but also it's a it's a call for it's a call for action you know do little things as best you can to support people around you and i think a really important part of that is the the creation of community connecting with those around you just sort of strange little thing like try this smile at strangers not garish smiles but just gentle smiles and see if you can get a smile in response if you can you've done something sort of nice for the day a little bit of joy was shared there was a radio show when i was growing up which had a uh, an intro or an outro which which said if you see someone without a smile give them one of yours And I'd like to see a lot more of that because we're going to need communities to come together and advocate for peace. For the alternative is disastrous. So the end of this article asks people to do something, whatever they can, to contribute towards peace. And one of those articles in the interesting articles article uh, was by a, uh, a man by the name of Dimitri Lascaris, who's a Canadian lawyer, and that's the final article that was published in the newsletter, which I will mention today. And I, I published essentially an anti-hit piece on him, i.e. to praise the fact that he's actually doing something. In fact, what he's doing is a little bit similar to that which Scott Ritter is doing, who's currently in the Russian Federation, um, spruiking his book, which is about nuclear disarmament. What they're both trying to do is to bridge the artificial barrier which has been constructed between the Russian people and the peoples of Europe and the English-speaking world, which we saw at the outbreak of the SMO in that there was a banning of Russian literature, Russian music, uh, Russian sports people. It's, I mean, it's absolutely batshit crazy. So what they are trying to do is to reconnect. It's a term sometimes called citizen diplomacy. So ignore the idiots at the, at the top who are creating all of this animosity and trouble and bypass them and directly connect with the other, the generated other, and recognize that, hey, they're just like you and me. And they've got brothers and sisters and fathers and maybe children as well, and they all want the same things, to live a peaceful life and enjoy the company of their friends and savor the beauty of watching their children grow. It's the same, the world over. And so that's what that article was about and that's what Dimitri is doing good on him good on him until next time Mm